Hello there, everybody. My name is Matt Nickison, lead pastor at Kingsway Christian Church. It's an honor to be towards the end of this series with you. For those of you who are visiting with us, we thank you so much for tuning in, giving us a little bit of your day. We've been going through a series all about freedom, and I can't recover everything that we've talked about in this series, but this week is really important because it builds on last week. This week, we're talking about forgiveness, forgiveness, and how forgiveness is the key to freedom. Now, here's a great question for all of us to wrestle with. Who do I have to forgive and when? A couple years ago, I was talking with one of our coworkers, a guy named Todd Allen. For those of you who've been at Kingsway, you remember Todd. And Todd and I were discussing this idea of forgiveness. And am I biblically bound to forgive somebody when they've never asked for my forgiveness? And it's a great question, and it's one that maybe you've wondered before yourself. Well, the Bible says many, many things about forgiveness. But the key of all of them is that freedom comes through forgiveness. What Jesus longs to do, and we're going to see that in just a moment, what Jesus longs to do is he longs to have us be a people who are living free. To be free means that we are able to follow the Spirit, to be in step, the Bible says, with the Spirit, not being driven by our flesh and by our fleshly desires. Now, what I want to do is I want to take you to a chapter in the Bible. That's where we'll spend most of our time today, and it's in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible open or if you're using a digital Bible at home, you can follow along. Otherwise, everything I read will be on the screen here for you. Now, in Matthew 18, there are many things that are said. Jesus is marching towards the cross, and he's getting really close in the book of Matthew to that point. And he's kind of throwing in some last-minute lessons. He's spending a lot of time with the disciples, prepping them for what to expect. And in Matthew 18, he grabs a little child and he puts the child up in his lap. And he positions the child there and he begins to talk through the lens of a child. And he basically says to everybody else who will watch and listen, hey, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven until you become like a little child. Now Jesus goes even beyond that and he says some more things about children like anybody who hurts a child, it would be better for them to have a large millstone wrapped around their neck and thrown into the ocean than to stand before God on the last day, the judgment day, when we give an account for our lives. Now, if you don't know what a millstone is, I went to a camp once and they had one. It's bigger than this wooden table here. It's a large concrete thing that you would use on a, in a mill to grind up food and things like that. Huge, huge, huge stone. It'd be better for you to have that and have thrown into the ocean with that thing wrapped around your neck. And what Jesus is saying is he's making this strong proclamation that God cares and God is watching how we treat children. Now, put all of this together. Does Jesus mean this literally or spiritually or both? Does it mean that God cares about children or does that God want all of us, remember we're told all of us, to become like little children? And the answer is yes. When God looks down at men and women all over the earth, what he sees is people who are made in his image. They are made after him. More than the birds and the lions and even the tigers and the kitty cats and the dogs. He loves men and women of all ages and all uh, educational perspectives, uh, whether rich or poor, and it doesn't matter anything else. The world looks at the outside, but God looks at the human heart. And what he sees in each of us is something precious and adored. There's strong warning for how we treat children, but there is strong warning for how we treat each other. And what we learn in Matthew 18 is that God longs for human unity in him. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus says this. If your brother or sister sins, now this is important. 
Because what we will see throughout Matthew 18 is we are now talking, not brother or sister literally, though it could apply, we're talking brother or sister in the faith, in the faith. That's going to be relevant to the story and understanding what's happening here. But if your brother or sister, other Christian sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Throw a big party is the implication. In fact, in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story that is also repeated in Luke 15. And that's relevant if you know Luke 15. If not, I encourage you to go read it sometime because of what happens in these two stories. And the ones in the story that's shared in both those texts, he tell, Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who has 100 sheep and one of them wanders away. And he says, wouldn't the shepherd leave those 99 sheep together and go pursue the one until he has found it and put it on his shoulders and carry it back home? And when he has found it, wouldn't he throw a big party, we learn in Luke 15, for his one found lost sheep? This is important because the perspective here is if somebody has wronged you, you need to go to them and confront them about how they have sinned against you. And if they repent, and if they say, I'm sorry, I know I did this, celebrate, throw a party, because that's what your Father in Heaven is doing, like we talked about last week, when people return to Him. When we go to God and say, God, I was wrong. God, I was sinning. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. God throws a party. In fact, all of Heaven throws a party that just one sinner has repented. And that's great news, but that's hard news. But let's just be honest for a minute. It's hard enough to get up the gumption, the courage to go and confront somebody who's hurt you in a way that is pleasing to God, right? I'm not just talking about pulling out my fist and whacking somebody in the face. I'm talking about actually going to somebody and confronting them and saying, you hurt me. And here's what you did. And here's how it hurt. But it's even harder if that person were to look at you and say, you're right and I'm sorry, will you forgive me, to then release them of the debt that was incurred. And now, if you're younger at home, you may not understand this language of debt, right? But those of us who are adults, we understand. Let me try to give a quick understanding for the younger people maybe watching at home. If um, you want to go purchase, say, a, a car, and you don't have the money for a car, you can go out and take out debt from the bank to buy the car. And the Bible uses the same kind of language when it comes to hurting and sinning against each other. This idea of credit and debit. This whole idea of if you, you can do and incur a debt. When you hurt somebody, a gap is created. And who is going to pay for the gap? Who's going to pay the bill for what was done? Now, eternally, what we see is God has paid our bill in full but there's still brokenness that exists. I called them consequences over the last two weeks for the choices that we've made. I want you just to hang with me because I put a lot of questions on the table. We brought a lot of issues up, but we're gonna bring up more, and hopefully by the end, we have some very practical steps to help you walk through this. Let's go ahead and look at the next verse. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Throughout the Old Testament, we were told there had to be two or three witnesses if a person was going to be tried for something. And the reason that we need two or three witnesses is because that way we can clarify, this isn't my opinion against your opinion, that there are two or three people who were there, they saw it, and they could verify what happened, and they could say what was right or wrong. We all know, and we've all been a part of a situation where we've been accused of, or we accused somebody of something, and it was at least a little bit gray as to exactly what happened or why it happened or what needed to happen next. 
And what Jesus is saying is, I so long for there to be healing and reconciliation between you that if you go to them and they won't repent, take two or three people with you because they can help establish for you whether or not you were actually right. What if you go to confront the person and that person has another side of the story and the truth is you are the one who is wrong. These two or three witnesses need to be godly spiritual people. Again, we're talking about within the body of faith and they can go along with you and they can help establish the issue for you. But what if something still doesn't change? Well, at that point, you can give up. You can throw your hands up in the air and say, you know what? I did my best. It's no longer on me. Except verse 18 says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And they refuse to listen to the church. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now we're getting into the world of church discipline and we don't have time to go too far into that, but I want you to imagine a first century church. And in the first century church, people would be in homes and it was by and large families. And then neighbors and friends would slowly gather into those churches. So you might have grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle and cousins and nephews and everybody kind of gathering in a church together. And you can imagine if there's a conflict between brother and uncle or dad and uncle or whatever the situation is, you can imagine a situation where the church is disrupted because now this part of a family is separated from this part of a family and therefore the church family is broken and you got neighbors visiting and other co-workers visiting this church and they know what's going on these people are all messed up and broken and you can see that right but it's a little different scenario let's say a Kingsway where we have thousands of people who come to Kingsway on a regular basis who are even watching at home online right now are we supposed to bring every issue before the entire church and let everybody weigh in on it make a decision and the simple answer is no no but what Jesus is trying to say is there's this progressive kind of escalating of issues, of situations. What Jesus is saying is we don't simply and quickly release things or let go of things. We keep fighting for unity between us. And that's really important. Well, there's a guy sitting there that day, and his name is Peter. And if you don't know Peter, Peter's one of the disciples, later one of the apostles. And he's one of the key three leaders that Jesus would choose to lead in his church. You may have heard jokes about Peter and guarding the gates and letting people in and out because he's that important. That's how often we talk about Peter. And Peter's sitting there and he knows Jesus. He's been with Jesus for a little over three years, roughly at this point. He knows a lot of Jesus' teachings. He's heard everything Jesus has said, even in the context of Matthew 18. And Peter's wrestling with Jesus' grace and generosity. Now, the rabbis in Peter's day would often teach that if somebody hurt you and sinned against you, yes, you were to forgive them, but there was in the law, it was spelled out, they needed to do these things and pay these things and all of that. And there was this system for that. But if they did it again, okay, you could do it a second time. But they do it a third time, maybe a fourth time. That's it. You were off the hook. It was over. And Peter's got this rabbi teaching in his head, and he's got Jesus teaching in his head, and he's trying to figure out what do I actually do in this situation? And here's what he says. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter's being generous. He's thinking, okay, if the rabbis teach maybe two to four, say three times, Jesus is going to say somewhere more than that. I'll pick this number seven. It's a good biblical number anyway. Why not? Well, Jesus responds, Matthew 18, 22. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Seventy-seven times? So I want you to imagine Peter that day. Somebody comes to Peter and says, Peter, I took one of your sheep today and I'm sorry. Well, can you give it back? No, no, we, we ate it for lunch. And then comes back later that day and I took another sheep. Peter, I had some guests come over and, and just wanted you to know I'm sorry. I took your sheep 
Well, can you give it back? No, no, we had to cook meals for them too. And then later that day, 77 times. And every time Peter shuts the door, the neighbor knocks on the door, Peter shuts the door, he makes a mark on the wall and he's counting them down until he gets to 77. Is that what Jesus meant? No. Well, how do we know that's not what Jesus meant? Well, Jesus was just picking a number and he was doubling it. Peter said seven, Jesus said 77. And that's not the answer either. Jesus desires full reconciliation. How do we know? Well, it has to do with the number here, 77. So if you have your Bible out, whether it's digital or print, if you're using, say, um, the Bible app from Life Church or whatever it is, you may notice an asterisk and you may drop down to the bottom there and you may notice a little note there. We aren't 100% sure whether Jesus says 77 or 70 times 7 and it doesn't matter which one it really is. So I want to be clear, while we aren't 100% sure which one Jesus actually said, both of them have a strong biblical connection and have a nuance. Jesus was a phenomenal rabbi of the Old Testament. Let me give you the context for both of them because they imply the exact same thing. The first story, if the number is 77, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, so after Adam and Eve sin, their first two children that are mentioned, a guy named Cain and a guy named Abel, their two sons. And Cain gets jealous of Abel and he ends up killing Abel. And God comes down to hold Cain accountable for the way that he's treated Abel. And Cain is scared because God has basically said to Cain, Cain, I'm removing you from this place. You're now going to go out on your own. And Cain says, but if I go out on my own in this context, what will happen when other people find me and they find out that I'm Cain who killed Abel? What if they kill me? And God says, Cain, anybody who kills you, I will judge them and I will repay them. Guess what number he says? Seven times. Well, you may say, why is that relevant? Because Cain has a child and seven generations later, his grandchild, his name is Lamech. And we don't know much about Lamech. He's not listed a ton in the Bible, but Lamech writes a song. He's got these two wives. He's the first person to sin in that way. He's got these two wives and he writes this song. And in the song that he tells his wives about, he sings for his wives. He says, somebody hurts me, offends me and I killed him. So now we have the sins of Cain being passed on to his great, great, great grandson, seven generations later. And he says, if God judged others who had hurt Cain seven times, then Lamech will judge you 77 times for hurting him. Now you may be saying, I don't understand what any of this has to do with anything. You got to put the pieces together like a puzzle. Jesus is a master teacher. And a lot of times we have to read his stories to understand the context to go, what's the beauty of what Jesus is teaching us? And the beauty of what Jesus is teaching us, God was pronouncing a judgment and a protection over anybody who would hurt Cain. God does the same for us today. This is why we see both in Proverbs and also quoted by Paul. It's in the book of Romans, I believe it is, that we are to be kind towards those who hurt us we are to heap blessings upon them. And in doing so, we heap, it says, burning coals on their heads. It's a sign of allowing God to handle the judgment. But Lamech didn't let God handle the judgment. Lamech didn't let God take care of it. He took matters into his own hands, carried out his own form of judgment and justice. And in doing so, he used the number 77. Jesus, if the number here is 77, he's saying, I want you not to forgive seven times, Peter. I want you to forgive 77 times. In other words, the implication then is you stop worrying about extracting justice and you start worrying about reconciliation. Do you see it? It's beautiful and yet hard. 
Now let's just say the number is 70 times seven. This one I can get through a little faster, but it's the same implication. In Daniel 9, we're told about a prophecy, and that prophecy would lead us to the coming one, the Messiah. And the prophecy is called the 70 weeks prophecy. How many days in a week are there? Seven. 70 times seven. And the point is, at the end of those 490 years, it points us to the ultimate year of Jubilee. If you don't know what Jubilee is, this is relevant to everything else I need to share with you today. So if you're at home and you don't enjoy all this deep Bible stuff, stick with me for a minute. The year of Jubilee is every seven years, the Hebrew people were commanded to take a year off. No work. Don't work the ground. Let the ground rest and you rest also. Now, seven times seven years would be 49. The 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, it was just a year where all debts were erased. So what would happen is, let's say you took out money to buy that car, a car you couldn't afford. And so you went to the bank and you borrowed the money and the business fell apart. And now you can't pay the car. You could become an indentured servant to the bank or the person you borrowed from until the debt was repaid. But not in the year of Jubilee. All debts are erased. Everybody goes back to ground zero again. As far as we know in Hebrew history, they've never reached the year of Jubilee. Jesus shows up and he announces the true year of Jubilee, that in Jesus Christ, all debts have been erased. And now what Jesus is saying is, Peter, I don't want you to forgive seven times. I want you to forgive completely. Peter, it's the year of Jubilee. All debts erased. Ali, ali, oxen free. Everyone come out. Now imagine a group of people who actually live this way. Imagine a group of people, let's just say 2,000 of them in Avon, Indiana, who actually believe that no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. And not just forgiven for something that you did in some other state or some other town to some other person. You can actually be forgiven for everything you've ever done to me or to you. Wouldn't you want to be a part of a community like that? I know I would. I want to give you three, what I would call freedom steps. Three freedom steps. These are three things that I believe you need to do to be able to walk in freedom. You ready? The first one, finding freedom in life requires humility. Humility. In other words, you're never going to be able to forgive somebody you're never going to be able to be forgiven and be a part of that kind of community unless you are humble. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, his famous teaching on the mount. He says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is even angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You may hear words like that and go, I, I don't know what this means. I, I recently, I had a, a loved one reach out to me and say, I was reading this. I don't know what it means. And to be very quick here, to call somebody raka or to call somebody fool is to judge them. A fool throughout the Bible is a person who is directly opposed and have their heart hardened against God. They will not receive correction. They will not receive discipline. They will not change. So for you to look at somebody and pronounce them a raka, a fool, is not just looking at somebody saying, that is a foolish thing to do. Jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and hoping it works out is a foolish thing to do. That's not, it's not just simply that simple. It's looking at somebody in judgment for something they have done. And Jesus says, anybody who does that is in danger of the fires of hell. 
The whole point is, anytime we elevate ourselves to the ultimate judge and we leave no room for God, we are in a dangerous place. We must always leave room for God to judge the situation. It's exactly what happened with Lamech. Do you see it? It's exactly what happens with us. If you're ever going to find freedom, it's going to require humility because it's going to mean you not becoming the final judge over somebody else. And it also might mean you, in humility, seeking forgiveness for times that you've acted like a fool. Second step, freedom. Finding freedom in life requires repentance. The very next thing Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go first, and be reconciled to them. Then, then come and offer your gift. This is an absolutely preposterous situation. If you can imagine the scenario where somebody's traveled perhaps 30 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem, they need to offer their sacrifice. They stop to buy the animal on their way. They get all the way up to the altar after waiting their turn in this long line. It's taken days to get there, all day to offer their sacrifice, and it suddenly dawns on them, oh yeah, back home, my neighbor, I forgot I did that thing, and they're really upset at me. Jesus says, I don't care. Just go ahead and leave your sacrifice. Leave it? Leave it where? There's not like there's a, a place to just put in holding your sacrifice. Jesus says, I don't care. Don't even attempt to be reconciled to me until you are reconciled to other people. That's the urgency with which God wants us to approach this. Now, what does that mean? That means that when I'm repenting, I can't just return to God and say, God, I'm sorry I sinned against you. I need to go to whoever it is I sinned against or whoever else my sin hurts and go to them and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And Jesus says, when you've been reconciled there, then come back and offer your sacrifice. If you ever want to find freedom, you can't just find it on your knees with God. You must also go to those that you have hurt and say, I sinned against you and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Now here's the thing, anytime I do this subject, there's always so much more to say than there is time to say. But let's keep moving because there's still yet more to say that I do have time for. And that's step three. And that is this. If you're ever gonna find freedom in this life, it's gonna require you to forgive. And it may be easier said than done depending on what has happened to you. Now, I want to go back through Matthew 18 quickly. What Jesus, where we started today in Matthew 18, is Jesus said, if somebody sinned against you, you go to them, confront them. If they repent, let's praise God. You want your brother, your sister, your friend back. If they won't repent, then you take two or three with you. If they still won't repent, then you take them before the church. Now, the reason that is critical is because if you notice, with each step of a person not repenting, the distance between you and them becomes greater. Does that make sense? So while it might have been safe at first to go to them and confront them, if they won't repent, then there needs to be more gap between you. Having two or three with you can act like a buffer. And if that still doesn't work, then you've got the church. And that church could be 25 people or it could be 500 people. But the point is, it increases in safety for you. God is not asking you to go into an unsafe situation and simply act like nothing ever happened. Are there times that we overlook offenses? Man, I don't know if anybody watching this would be married today, would have a friend in the world today, if we never overlooked any offense. The problem is we can't overlook every offense, and some of us do that far too easily. 
We dismiss real hurt, real pain, real evil, and Jesus calls us to be courageous and bold and say, don't dismiss it, don't overlook it, don't ignore it, confront it, and forgive it. Now, if you're sitting at home right now, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I can forgive what that person did to me. Let's answer one question quickly that I know needs more time. In fact, let's spend more time on that on our podcast this week. You can go to your podcast store and listen to the podcast a step further. If you have time this week, I highly encourage that. And we'll deal with that in a minute. But do I have to forgive somebody if they never ask me to forgive them? That is a very hard and complex subject that needs more time to delve into than we have time for here. What I would say is this. True reconciliation can only occur when repentance has occurred first. God longs for reconciliation, but you are never responsible for another person's actions. The only person you're responsible for in all of Jesus' illustrations is yourself. That's why it's critical if we're ever going to become that church we talked about, that we each become people who admit when we are wrong and we become people who forgive when others admit that they are wrong. Do I have to forgive? Yes. Yes. And I always need to take a position of forgiveness towards other people. Mercy requires it. In fact, the very next thing that Jesus says is he tells a story. And I'll summarize most of the story before I close with a small passage. The summary goes like this. In Matthew 18, Jesus says a very wealthy man calls in one of his servants. And a servant owes him something like 10,000 denarii. No, 10,000 talents, I believe it says. Now, a talent is roughly 15 to 20 years worth of wages. And this person owes 10,000 talents years of 15 to 20,000 years worth of wages. The number is so big, it's incalculable. We don't, whose wages are we going with? We're going with a $10 an hour, $15 an hour wage, we're going with, you know, a $1,000 an hour wage, it doesn't matter. The whole point of the illustration is the number is so big, it's astronomical. And the man has decided, I'm gonna take you and your wife and your children, we're gonna, we're, you're, you're gonna spend the rest of your lives, you're gonna spend forever paying this thing off. That's it, have him arrested. And the man falls on his face and he begs and he pleads. And the wealthy man decides, not only will I not have you arrested, not only will I not take you as a dedured servants, but I will actually erase the entire debt. It is a dramatic turn of events, and there's no question whatsoever Jesus is pointing to God himself, who took the debt that we've accrued through our sin that we talked about last week, and when we fall on our face and we beg God to forgive us, that he erases all of our debts in Jesus Christ. But then he says that same man walks out of the presence of this wealthy man, and he finds somebody who owes him basically what comes down to a hundred days worth of work, basically one-third of a year's worth of work. And he comes to the man and he says, you owe me. The man says, I can't pay you. But he falls on his face and he begs the man, just please, please, please give me more time. I promise I will repay you if you just give me more time. And the man says, absolutely not. And he has him and his family thrown into jail, which by the way, can the man ever repay the debt if he's in jail? Do you get the analogy there? Oh, that last part's real powerful. A person can never repay what they've done to you if they've been separated from you and they're locked up in some sort of unforgiveness jail. So what do we do? Jesus says when the master finds out about it, his servants come to him and tell him. Take a look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 32. Then the master called the servant in 
And he says, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. How's he gonna pay back all he owed in jail? Verse 35, he says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and your sister from your heart. And therein lies the key. Look, what God has forgiven you of, let me make this personal, what God has forgiven me of is significantly more, significantly more than anything anybody else has done to you. And for some of you, that is a massive statement to make, and I am not minimizing your pain. I'm not. I'm not minimizing the evil that was done to you, and neither would God. In fact, he hated it so much, he let his son be crucified in order to lead all men, all women, all people back to himself. And that's critical for us to understand. That God longs for all to come to repentance. The whole reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he wants us to come to repentance. And he wants to use you and your pain to lead others there. Remember back in Matthew 18 when Jesus said, first you confront them if they won't confess. Then you take two or three with you if they won't confess. Then you take them before the church and if they still won't confess. Then you do this. Look at Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You may go, I don't know what that means. Think about it. Pagans and tax collectors are not part of the church unless they've repented and they come to God. How did they repent and come to God? What did Jesus do with pagans and tax collectors? Do you know what he did with them? He ate with them. He welcomed them. He served them. He prayed for them. He wept over them. He loved them them. This is not a message of condemnation, but it is a message of warning because Jesus was not afraid to look at tax collectors and pagans and sinners and say, you're going to be eternally separated from God if you don't come to him in faith. And Jesus says, if somebody will not repent of their sin, then do not treat them as a Christian brother or sister. You treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. You call them into a right, repentant relationship with God, but you pray for them and you bless them, and you serve them. And the implication is because that's what God did for you. And I know that's what he's done for me. What we wanna do now is take communion together. I wanna to encourage you, if you haven't already, to run to your fridge and grab the reddest juice that you can, grape juice, if you have to, cranberry juice. Grab some sort of cracker, the drier the bread, the better it fits the biblical motif. But there's grace here. And I want to remind you, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 11 is this idea of unity in the body. That we dare not come into this moment and take communion if there's brokenness between us and others. That first, we must leave our sacrifice at the altar and go be reconciled to our brother or sister, then come back here and might even come back here together. Listen, I don't, I don't want to push you in places you're not yet ready to go. 
but if you are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness against someone else, before you take communion in this moment, I want you to call them. Spend some time with God. Get it worked out in your head and heart, but go be reconciled and look at them and say, what you did to me hurt me, but what God did for me was good for me, and I love you, and I'm sorry, or I forgive you, whichever side of that issue you're on. Say, will you forgive me, or I forgive you? Tremendously powerful. Then come back here, take the bread, take the juice, and thank God that he has forgiven.